0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania has been identified as one of the swing states in this fall's presidential election. Many have called it a must-win for Donald Trump. If that be the case, the results of the latest Franklin and Marshall College poll aren't good news for Trump. Joining us to tell, talk us about the poll is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, who is one of the pollsters, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs, and director, director of the FNM poll. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program.
1: Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me as always.
0: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org right, Terry, I'm going to go down through some of the results that the the poll found and kind of get an explanation or some analysis of some of these things. The big news is that Hillary Clinton uh, is leading Donald Trump 49 to 38 percent amongst likely voters. Now, that's a little bit, uh, that's a little bit of a a gain for Clinton from your last poll. What happened?
1: Yeah, well, basically what happened was that uh, she had a a very successful convention. Actually, so did Trump. He had about a a median bump of about three to four points. Her bump was about six to seven points. And we were in the field at the end of her convention. Last Friday we went into the field, so we wanted to pick up support that voters, you know, may, may, what did the voters do after watching vote conventions? She was the beneficiary of an increased vote, Scott. That's point number one. Point number two, over the weekend when we were in the field, Trump got involved in this controversy with the Khan family. That's the parents of the Muslim captain who was killed in Iraq. His initial comments went viral. Not particularly helpful to him. And as a result of that and some other factors that played into it, Scott, Trump emerged into this 11-point lead. Now, one other quick point. Nationally as well, Trump uh, lost ground to Secretary Clinton. On the eve of her convention, he had a one-point lead nationally on the average of the polls. He's now down by five. The Fox News poll yesterday had Trump down by 10 percentage points nationally. So you can see this big turn of events literally within a week in the presidential election.
0: If you had to choose between the two of what had more of an impact, the convention or the con controversy, uh, did voters say which one mattered to them more?
1: No, they did not. But I'm. But here's what we can surmise: if we take a look at her bump compared to his, she should. Have, uh, he, she was one point down. You know, let's say that she would have gotten four or five points, but she's eleven points down in my poll, ten nationally in the Fox poll. You can see where I'm heading. Mm-hmm. So you probably have a, a pretty equal division of the loss of support for Trump, and again. These are self-imposed, in some cases, like the Khan con controversy and some others that he gets in. Everybody who studies politics says, oh, Trump, why don't you talk about the economy? Why don't you talk about what you'll do to help the middle class? And yet he spirals off into these other areas, as you know, because you follow this closely, that and he gets in this needless controversy that don't help him.
0: What about Republican voters? That uh, Did the con thing matter to them?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he's, he's dropped his support among Republicans. Here's a way to look at this. Hillary Clinton has more support among Democrats than Trump has among Republicans. And that's been pretty consistent. But you've got this nagging concern among, you know, more than a handful of Republicans, that Trump, you know, isn't electable, that's one. But more importantly, again, I'm back to this the point that he makes so many controversial statements that he loses support among you know, a reasonable share of Republicans depend on depend on the poll. And then about every day you have some other major Republican indicating they're not going to support him. Charlie Dent, Congressman Dent, a pretty influential and Republican in the Republican caucus, he, uh, he said he's not voting for either Trump or Clinton. So, he, and you know, Pat Toomey has been there and he hasn't moved an inch saying I'm not endorsing Trump. So that, that's pretty much the, the case.
0: Mm. So, and and this was likely voters. Uh, that was more of the headline than registered voters, where Clinton has right. even a bigger lead, forty-eight yeah. to thirty-five percent. Why? Uh, why is it more important likely voters? I know this, this sounds like a, a pretty obvious question, but yeah, because, why is it why is it more important likely voters over registered voters?
1: Because Scott, these are the people at that now that we're pretty sure will vote. Now, when we talk about likely voters. We're going to start to track them, and that can change over time. I mean, remember, we have, what, uh, under 100 days until we vote, and we have three debates, and this election has been topsy-turvy. At Twice in the last three months, Trump has actually caught Secretary Clinton and had a narrow lead in the average of the national polls, and some of the state polls done by other pollsters, at various times have also shown a very close race, but we have so much time yet, we just don't know what's likely to happen, and the exact pool of likely voters will be determined over time.
0: See, that is one of the topics that uh, has been discussed most often with This campaign, and I say this campaign, I'm talking about the whole presidential campaign, as long as it has been, as negative as it has been, as unique as it has been, um, that there's been a lot of talk about, okay, who's going to stay home? Are there people who are going to be so disgusted that they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going to vote for either one of them. In fact, I'm not going to vote. What about that? Yeah
1: i tell you, this is what is really strange, and I know a lot of your listeners will find what I'm going to say. Maybe a bit on. We are tracking two questions. Now, there are others that you can ask. One is, are you certain to vote? We ask people that. The next question is, are you interested? How interested are you in the election? And what we care about is very interested. Why? If you're certain to vote, you're very interested. You can reach a conclusion that why? These are people who are going to vote. So we get up to 89 percent who say they're certain to vote and 72 percent who say they're very interested. So translation, we got two presidential candidates who are more unpopular than popular, yet we could have a pretty significant turnout on November 8th. Now, think about that. They're unpopular yet more I've seen some studies that have shown we could have a higher turnout than in the last couple of election cycles. How how is that? Well, I think people are genuine. Oh, how about this? People are more upset and indicating they are voting against the other candidate than voting for the candidate of their, you know, their choice. Yeah. So in other words, it's a negative vote. It's like I'm voting for the lesser of two evils.
0: And and you asked that question in the poll, and that's what it, it came out as, right?
1: Well, what we asked was certain to vote and and uh, very interested in the election. Now, I we have other pollsters have asked that question, and and I I did not, but I'm just using other mm. pretty good polls. At one point, a couple of weeks ago, more than half. The voters, and and this has not been true in modern history, said they were, they they were they were voting for their candidate not because they were more for their own candidate but because they were against the other candidate. That's a little hard to get out. Try to think about how to say that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All
0: right, let's take a call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air.
1: Hi, Scott. Hi, um, I have a couple questions for Terry. One of them is. Uh, uh... hillary uh... it seems like she has been doing pretty well in a lot of demographic groups but she's been getting killed with uh, white males. Do you have any indication
0: as to whether she's improving in that area? Yeah. Hey, uh, Jim, you anticipated more on my questions because that, yeah. they did a lot of questioning mm-hmm. on that. Thank you very much for your call. Terry, what about that? There are groups where Trump is doing well, and Jim's right. question in particular yeah. about whether uh, Hillary Clinton yeah. is doing better okay. in some of those demographics.
1: Yeah, without, you know, boring everybody with a lot of details and numbers, let me just say this. Donald Trump wins among males and wins among white white males that's absolutely true but his problem is that she wins a higher percentage among females than he wins white females than he wins among white males and what do we know here's what we know more women vote than men right and she does better with white women than he does with white men. And that's a very important situation that Donald Trump has to deal with. Let me put it, let me add the minorities in, because that could as well be a question that Jim might have. If you, Trump only wins in our poll 7% of the African-American vote, nationally, you won't believe this, he's down in some polls to 3% of the African-American vote. And in one poll, I saw he had zero percent. I saw I find that. You, I, you saw that? Yeah, 0%. I saw
0: the same thing, yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, in our state, African Americans are 13 percent of the electorate. Women in our state, 52, 53 percent, could stretch to 54. You know, we'll have to see. So uh, I saw a report earlier that said we could have the biggest gender divide in the actual election in modern history, with you know males in double digits supporting Trump and females in double digits supporting Clinton, so just think about the how divided we are along gender lines. Uh, there's something else that's sort of interesting when we ask, and not just gender lines, but the dislike that people in the Democratic Party have for people in the Republican Party. It's actually gotten personal. I joke and say Democrats don't want to marry Republicans and vice versa anymore. That's how personal this has all got.
0: Well, I mean, you can see that uh, the polarization without even taking a poll, uh, you know, with, 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 with that. But I do want to talk a little bit about because, you know, something that Jim brought up. Uh, not only white men is Trump dealing with, but if you break it down a little bit more, education levels, where they live, that kind of thing.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, let's talk about you go out into the southwestern part of the state in the counties surrounding Allegheny county, like Westmoreland, washington, beaver, green, where you know the old mining and mill towns where steel and coal and iron and coke were once huge in the Pennsylvania economy Uh, in there with the, with the white voters there, he is, he is just running very strong. He pushes 60% support in that region of the state in South central PA. in you know, he certainly wins. The problem he has is he's not winning by the percentages that Republicans used to carry this region uh, 10, 20 years ago his real problem quite frankly is east of the susquehanna river he is losing 60 to 20 in the four philadelphia collar counties bucks chester montgomery and delaware and he's only getting a paltry vote in the city of philadelphia as you would expect and then up in the lehigh valley he's losing and you know i i always quote i always use this remember this about willie sutton people ask him once why rob banks yeah he says that that's where the money is yeah well guess what hillary's winning where the voters live you know <laughs> so go where the go where the votes are same, same kind of deal a couple
0: uh, uh, couple other things um as and this has been consistent all along Uh, both candidates, but this is where uh, Hillary Clinton probably polls the worst in honesty and trustworthiness. Now, one thing I did want to, and I've gotten a couple emails here from listeners as well. You have one of the first polls that I have seen that actually had the third party candidates uh, there and libertarian Gary Johnson uh, got 7% support in your poll.
1: That's correct. And, uh, Jill, Jill Stein at a, at a, at a less percentage, uh, less small. He, she's a, a, a candidate of the Green Party. I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, I don't know if you think that's high or low. Remember, he's got to get to the 15% threshold. Any third-party candidate in Pennsylvania will have a third-party candidate. We'll have at least three, Constitution, Libertarian, and Green, uh, Green on on the ballot, and I we asked the question first about the two candidates, major party. Then we threw the third party candidates in. Gary, or, uh, they don't make they don't make much of a difference at all. Gary Johnson in the race, Jill Stein. I don't think they're materially going to affect the outcome of the election. Now I say this, what in the in the early days in er, 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 early days in August, not knowing fully, you know what will transpire. He he has to get to the he has to get to the uh, debates. If he, if yeah, he can't I mean, get to the debates, I, I think you know. By the way, I was sitting next to him. I was doing an interview at the at the Democratic convention, and he came and sat down next to me to do another radio interview at in Radio Row, as they call it. And you would have never known he was a candidate. He had a short sleeve shirt on with. with flowers on it, you know, one of those looks like Hawaiian shirts. And a, and a pair of khaki. No. It's not a criticism. No. I just didn't recognize her <laughs> in that county.
0: I'm actually trying to get uh, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein uh, you know, to interview on the program. So we'll, we'll see what we can do. I only well, have they, a f- would
1: need, they would need all the publicity they would get. They ought to jump at coming on your
0: show. But ship. they haven't. They haven't so far. So, <laughs> all right. So let's uh, move quickly to uh, the U.S. Senate race. Uh, you yeah. found that uh, Katie McGinney has... Has a one-point lead over Pat Toomey, thirty-nine to thirty-eight percent. That basically is a statistical tie, a dead heat. But this race seems to go back and forth from poll to poll.
1: Yep. Uh, Well, let me try to explain it. I'm not sure I can, but I'll try. If you look at the polls where Hillary Clinton has a bigger lead, like the NBC Marist poll a couple weeks ago, they had Clinton at nine, and they had they did registered voters nine, and McGinty at seven. Now, think about this. The more the better Hillary Clinton does, the better McGinty does. Why? Because of the increase in in straight-party voting. We are seeing a decline in ticket splitting, an increase in straight-party voting. So, should one or should either of the presidential candidates get up there eight Ten, 12 points let's say that's their victory percentage, you know their margin. I think that could pull either Toomey or McGinty over over the, over the goal line. In other words, because of straight party voting, they could literally elect the other three row officers in the state as well, auditor general, treasurer and of, and of course attorney general
0: that's, uh, that's not good news for those candidates down below.
1: Well, let's look at 2012, the last presidential election. The Democrats swept the state. The lead vote getter was a certain attorney general. I won't mention her name. She, she had to lead by 13 points. Casey won by 9, and Obama won by 5.2 percentage points. The Democrats swept the other two row offices, auditor general and treasurer. So let's think about this. We have the three row offices, the U.S. Senate and the presidential election. I know you're seated. The Democrats won, all of them for the first time since the 1970s, largely because of the down-ballot effect. It's called coattail. So we could see – now, I'm not predicting that either Clinton or Trump will win our state by double digits or 8%, 10%. I'm merely saying if that happens, I think it would have a huge effect down-ballot.
0: Mm. Well, Terry, we have a few months to go. Actually, I think it's about 95 days, something like that. Uh, Under 100. And, and, you know, considering how long this presidential campaign has been, 95 days to the finish line just seems like it won't get here (laughs) soon (laughs) enough. But Dr. G. Chair, Madonna, Franklin Marshall Couch, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: My pleasure as always, Scott.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Penn State Nittany Lion football team opened practice yesterday, and there are a few changes this year. Head coach James Franklin is in his third year, but there are new offensive and defensive coordinators, and Christian Hackenberg has moved on to the NFL, so there will be a new starting quarterback. Talk in the offseason included discussion of a revamped Beaver Stadium and other schools bringing up the Sandusky child sex abuse scandal when recruiting against Penn State. Audrey Snyder, who covers Penn State for DKPittsburghSports.com, will join us throughout the season, including today. Audrey, welcome to the program.
3: Sounds great.
0: Thank you for having me. We uh, do this because yesterday was media day and the first day of uh, practice. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the team on the field. But uh, I know that you know not everyone is a uh, football fan or a Penn State fan in particular. So I want to talk about some of those other issues off the field as well. But, Audrey, when I say that uh, there are changes this year, and I listed some of them, James Franklin's third year. This season just seems to have a different feel to it. Now, is it just me, or are, are there changes afoot at Penn State?
3: There are a lot of changes going on, and with any program, it's natural that you're going to have some turnover, of course, from year to year, class to class, those kinds of things. But like you mentioned, with this populist plan that Penn State has regarding Beaver Stadium and, of course, all the other facilities on campus for athletics, but Beaver Stadium is the main one That release about this master plan about what they're going to do with those facilities should be released in late August, early September. Sounds like there's going to be some sort of renovation to Beaver Stadium, possibly reducing the capacity a bit to make the experience better for fans, that kind of thing. So there's so many changes both on the field and off the field when you look at it. And really, in this day and age, it seems like there's no longer an off season. You know, you go from one thing to another You follow the recruiting trail as much as you can because, of course, that's, you know, the lifeblood to any program. So a lot of changes going on around here, and it's a fresh season, so it seems like now they're all kind of at the forefront.
0: Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the Beaver Stadium plan. Uh, You know, one thing that uh, Penn State Athletic Director Sandy Barber mentioned is that there's a possibility of taking some seats away. Uh, James Franklin uh, used to brag, or still does brag, about uh, 107,000 strong, that uh, when the stadium is filled to capacity, it can hold 107,000 people, making it one of the top two or three uh, largest stadiums in the, in the country. So taking seats away, I don't know, under normal circumstances, a lot of people would say, whoa, 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 why would you do that? Because this is such a, a hard ticket to get. But they very rarely have sold out in recent years.
3: Right. Absolutely, and part of that, and I think we'll certainly hear more once the plan is officially released. But when you look at the capacity at that, you know, that 107 benchmark, one of the biggest in college football, which has long been a bragging point, there's no saying that Penn State, once they go through with the plan, will even be over 100,000. I mean, maybe they determine that the best is say 98,000, or maybe it is 100 or 102, but they they widen the seats as opposed to bleachers, maybe to to give the fans more you have know, a better more comfortable experience. All of the feedback for this was based off of what they had heard from fans, from season ticket holders and all those kinds of people. So these are all things that fans wanted to improve their game day experience. And like you said when you look at it, it used to be a tougher ticket, but in reality you have to fill this stadium for all of your home games. That's tough to do. Now this year they have five big conference games at home the Big Ten, so certainly a bigger deal, easier sell, some really good opponents coming to town. But on a week-to-week basis, and this just isn't Penn State, this is across college football, it's harder to fill these big facilities because the at-home viewing experience is now better than ever. Yeah, People can watch at home on multiple TVs, they can be scrolling Twitter, they don't have to worry about Wi-Fi and bathrooms concession prices and parking, all those kinds of things. So when you look at it, when you look at this plan and what they're going to do to the facilities, it would not surprise me one bit if you see this capacity, you know, maybe around a hundred thousand, maybe even a little less. So certainly worth keeping an eye on when that gets
0: released. Last year one of the criticisms was that uh, Penn State had if I recall correctly five straight home games and when you look at the cost of tickets and that's another criticism is that it is so expensive nowadays compared to just a few years ago not only the tickets but parking taking a whole almost a whole weekend that uh, even the the most diehard fans didn't want to shell out the money for some lesser opponent. Uh, As you said, the schedule is a a little better this year, uh, but those tickets are so expensive. And again, that's not just Penn State. That's everywhere.
3: Oh, absolutely. And you look at it, and now Penn State announced this offseason for the first time next year for their spring game, they're going to charge fans to park because they say, you know, it costs them so much to operate the stadium, to have all the workers, all these things, that fans will now have to pay starting next spring to come to the spring game, which will remain free but you still have a charge. And as someone, I live right here in State College, and it's always funny to me, game weekends, when you just see the lines of traffic coming in and the grocery stores get packed, and you know it really boosts the economy for that weekend here. But it's so expensive, and that's because you have limited hotels, you have limited resources, and you're factoring things in here. And last year, I mean, it was a brutal stretch for those five straight games, and you can't blame season ticket holders for saying, you know what, I'm not going to go to five straight. Maybe I'll go to only one or two of them, but that's where you're seeing these patches of empty seats in the stadium that you've really been seeing here for quite a few years in the past. Uh, but now it seems like it gets magnified because the stadium is so big. Um, so I think the seat reduction actually maybe from a cosmetic standpoint (laughs) of having it look a little more full let people have a little more room could kind of help
0: the image a bit. too. That's true. Um, So let's move on to uh, the recruiting. You know, did uh, James Franklin or anyone else address this issue yesterday? I know there was one question in the press conference that he seemed to allude to because both James Franklin and Sandy Barber, the athletic director, uh, mentioned before the Big Ten media uh, conference about other schools using the Sandusky child sex abuse scandal in recruiting. And it came as a surprise to many people because, you know, this happened five years ago. Of course, there has been—it's been in the news here recently again. Was that mentioned at all yesterday? It was mentioned,
3: kind of in passing. Uh, Franklin, the reporter who did the Q and A from the Reading Eagle, Rich Carsell, a longtime beat writer, does a tremendous job. Rich wrote the Q and A where Franklin had brought up negative recruiting on his own. It wasn't the question. James just brought it up and mentioned negative recruiting and how it, other schools were using it. And then, of course, out in Chicago, Franklin said that he believed it was taken out of context, that he was misquoted. So he apologized to Rich yesterday, and Franklin said that he needs to be more clear. So it didn't really clear the air too much, uh, but then later on, Franklin was asked about special teams, and someone said, well, it seems like you implied, and Franklin stopped right there. And everybody did laugh, both him and the media, and he goes, you know, I'm not implying anything anymore. I want to be as crystal clear as I can. You know, I want to give you guys as much, as good, much good information, your answers as I can. Uh, he's like, I'm done implying. And everybody laughed because clearly that was directly related to the whole negative recruiting thing um, and some people kind of reading between the lines there with that. But in the world of college football recruiting, as crazy as it is, really didn't surprise me that this was happening on the recruiting trail. Now, The bigger issue was trying to figure out what schools were doing it, and that's where the gray area was, and that's where Urban Meyer got mad, Mark Antonio got mad about that. That's Ohio State
0: and Michigan State's head coaches, yeah.
3: Yes, and and that's to me that's kind of the thing when you look at it is, you know, who is doing this, why are they doing it kind of thing. Um, Everybody in recruiting, it's an arm's race. You know, they want to try to boost their program and do what they can, but by them going around these other schools, whoever they are, and saying that there's a threat of more NCAA sanctions against Penn State, that's really what irks Barber and what irks James Franklin, because you look at it and there's no way the NCAA is going to get involved again or levy more sanctions, but they're spreading that false rumor, which really, and I've heard it from recruits who were negatively recruited who talked to me about it for a story I wrote. So certainly was happening, but it was a little more difficult to pinpoint where exactly it was coming from. Mm.
0: All right, so let's talk about on the field. Uh, As I said very early on that uh, uh, this season has a different feel. I don't know. I hate to say that uh, James Franklin seems less enthusiastic because he's still very, very enthusiastic compared to your average person. But he does. Right. But, But at the same time, I don't know. I, get the, I got the sense from watching the press conference yesterday that he wasn't as enthusiastic. He still was enthusiastic, but he wasn't as over-the-top as he normally as he has been the past two years.
3: I completely agree, and I think that's a really good point because it's something that readers have mentioned to me, people on Twitter have mentioned to me, and I do think that there is a change with Franklin's personality, or at least with how he's dealing with the media this year, than it's been in the past. And I say that because it seems like I mean when he got here, I was in that room for that opening press conference, and it was like the doors swung open and in he came and he was making these promises to dominate the state and the recruiting and all these things, and it was very over the top. And now it's all been dialed back. The sales pitch has been dialed back. Um, they're not, the staff is not making jabs at other staffs on Twitter, which we've seen the Pitt and Penn State staff in the past go at it a bit on Twitter. That's been cooled off, and Franklin always says that, you know, this is him, this is his personality. But to me, there's certainly been a change this year with it. And maybe that's just with us at the media. I mean, being at practice yesterday, he was certainly as lively as ever. Uh, And I know that's what a lot of recruits like to hear. That's what they like to see. That's what players like in him is that energy. So it's still there. But I do think and talking to him in Chicago uh, for a good while at the Big Ten Media Days, I said to him, you know, Going back to that introductory press conference, you know, you kind of wish that maybe you would have better done things differently. And he, of course, said, you know, he's fixed by what he did and and this and that. But he did admit, which I thought was pretty telling, that he didn't fully understand the scope of everything here regarding the NTA sanctions, regarding this program, until he actually got here and started doing the job. And I think that's fair when you think about any job. You don't fully know what you're getting into so until you, so you actually
0: do it. Right. And, you know, so that brings us back to the 2016 season. I mean, if you look at the win-loss record the past 10, uh, past two years, mm-hmm. it's 14 wins, 12 losses. Uh, a mediocre program, if you if you go by wins and losses. Now the sanctions have been removed; they can go to a bowl game as they have the past two years. Uh, they have full scholarships. Depth has been a problem the last couple of years. There is more depth, so a lot of people are saying that James Franklin is on the hot seat. Now, you know it's a normal situation now, and they're expecting improvement. Is that? It? Do you see him as being on the hot seat?
3: I don't necessarily yet, and if you would have asked me this in June, I would have said yes, but you ask me this now, and I say no, and the reason for that is because Franklin's assistants uh, were all given two-year contracts, essentially, this off-season, so this happened earlier in the summer, so to me, that then makes it a lot harder for Penn State to try and change, you know, these moving parts, and also, I sat down with Athletic Director Sandy Barber this summer and asked her specifically about Franklin and the progress she's seen, and she's been very supportive. And of course, you know, that's James's boss. And she supported him and said, listen, you know, I see the steps that this program is making, the progress they're making. And I said to her, I said, well, how do you measure that success? Because you look at the win-loss record, you know, two, seven, and here. Um, how do you measure that and figure that out when you have these sanctions that impacted what's the product on the field? And she said, you know, that. She goes back to off the field where James, you know, what they're doing in the community, the grades and all this and that. And those are things that fans don't usually want to hear about. Um, we talk about graduation success rates and those types of things.
0: Except when but it's convenient. Is,
3: right, yeah. right, exactly. And, yeah. and to me, that's kind of the thing. It's You have to almost separate the two because this is big-time college football, and you know what fans want to see. And it's great, you know, if you have a team that's doing all these wonderful things in the community and academically, that's wonderful, but you have to put two together. And to me, I think that's where this year it really heats up. Now, with Pitt, I think it magnifies that as well. You're playing Pitt, you're playing Temple again, two big in-state teams. Um, if you want to go back to that dominate the state thing on the recruiting trail, you need to, to be able to take care of the other two in-state schools to do that. So. To me, that's where the job security thing could be an issue if they would lose to Pitt, if they would lose to Temple in back-to-back weeks. could be ugly. Um, I think it's very realistic that they split those games, however. So I don't think it's necessarily this year, but if things fall apart early on, it's going to really be tough because in the Big Ten Conference, especially in Penn State's division in the East, you're playing some of the best teams in college football. So really getting over that seven-win hump is extremely difficult.
0: Mm. Audrey Snyder is with DKPittsburghSports.com. You can follow her on on the website there. Audrey, we'll talk to you throughout the season. Thank you very much for being with us today. Sounds
3: great. I look forward to
0: it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. August 12th through 14th, next week, Central Pennsylvania will once again play host to Hippocamp, a conference for creative nonfiction writers. It will be held in downtown Lancaster. The three-day event is sponsored by Hippocampus, a literary literary magazine started in 2011, whose mission is to entertain, educate, and engage readers by publishing new work from established and emerging writers of creative nonfiction. Here today to discuss the conference and the magazine is Donna Talarico, founder and publisher of Hippocampus. Ms. Larico, welcome to the program.
2: Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, we're going to talk about writing today. If you have a question, I know there are a lot of people who like to write for a hobby, but there are probably a lot of other people who like to would like to write for a living. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a message on WITF's Facebook page. Just make sure your writing skills are used when you do that. If not, we're not going to take them. No, I'm joking about that. 1-800-729-7532. Too, I right, first of all tell me about the magazine I- I itself.
2: Sure. Um, well, as you said, it the first issue was in May 2011, and we publish monthly. Creative nonfiction. Those are memoir excerpts, personal essays, and we even do shorter flash pieces of nonfiction. We publish about eight to ten pieces a month. But then we also, on the education part of our mission, we do interviews, reviews, craft articles, and writing life columns. So we have a whole articles department as well. Um, So we solicit, uh, we have an open submissions policy, and anybody can submit their work to us, and we just pick the gems that rise to the top and publish a new issue each month.
0: What was the idea behind it? I mean, just to was it to provide? Okay, now you say entertain, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, was it f- more for readers or the writers?
2: Well, I think that's um, kind of almost a joke with literary magazines, that it's only other writers that read literary (laughs) magazines. Um, So we try to make ours really, um, you know, we select stories that maybe the mass public would be interested in. But I started the magazine back in um, 2010. The idea was really born. Um, I wrote creative nonfiction myself. and they always tell you in grad school programs or writing workshops if you're not in an MFA program to get your work out there in literary magazines. But there weren't a lot of homes for just creative nonfiction. A lot of literary magazines published just poetry or just fiction or a little bit of everything. So at the time, there really weren't a lot of just nonfiction magazines, so I decided to fill a gap. Um, There are more now, but it's still, you know, we're we're still a relatively new genre with publications just focused on telling true stories.
0: So how would you define creative nonfiction?
2: Okay. Um, So the best way to describe it would be um, using a memoir for an example. Mm -hmm. So if you think of an autobiography, that's pretty factual, pretty straightforward, almost more of an academic style writing. Well,
0: depending on who's writing it. That's true. I'm joking. But
2: but a memoir um, could read like a novel. So basically you're using literary elements such as sensory detail, building scene, adding in dialogue, and just making it read as if it were a novel, but it's a true story. So I think that's the best example I could give for creative nonfiction. So true stories told with some literary elements.
0: I got an email from a writing major who he said the joke is that creative nonfiction isn't that an oxymoron.
2: Yes. Yes. I, and yeah, there that's talked about a lot. Well, if it's <laughs> creative, how could it be true, too? Right, right. So I think where that comes into play is if you are writing about your childhood, you know, and especially if you grew up a long time ago, you didn't have a tape recorder. You didn't have a video recorder. You can't remember every single thing. So you have some creative liberties where you could recreate dialogue. You know, this must have been what I've said or I probably was thinking. So you have some creative liberty there. Um, um, but but yeah, that, that has been said a lot. <laughs>
0: We're going to talk about the conference next mm-hmm. week in just a few minutes because there are so many different areas that you're covering. Yeah. But, you know, I, as I said in the introduction, there probably have been many, many people over the years who whether it was in college, whether it's something they do as an adult, uh, uh, keeping a memoir, a mm-hmm. diary, uh, just writing you know, for, for pleasure, who yeah. thought, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at this. How could I do it professionally? Do you have a lot of people who say, you know, I want to break through. I want to be a professional writer, but I don't know how to go about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think especially when you're writing about yourself, um, you know, you said journaling and keeping a diary. If you've gone through either some traumatic experiences or just have things you want to track down to help you work through things, that's more personal writing. But there is probably a lot of details in there that you could turn into a story that's relatable to other people um, and turn it into something. So I think that's the biggest difference between just writing for yourself. But then now, if you want an audience to read it, that's where you add in some of those literary elements, those elements of craft. Mm -hmm. Um, And our magazine and our conference does attract people who maybe are writing for a hobby or just for professional or for personal enjoyment. But also, other people that want to get out there and get recognized so they could get a book published.
0: Just out of curiosity, those who submit something to the mm-hmm. magazine, are they compensated?
2: Right now, that's and that's a big question in the literary community as well. Um, a lot of literary magazines are labors of love. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're working on some ways to monetize our publication so we can compensate writers. But for now, like a lot of literary magazines, it's um, just writing for the joy of being published and getting your, your work shared. Yeah, and
0: there is something, too. I mean, it's a big deal yeah. when you can see your written word words that uh, you put together that you crafted on the written page.
2: Yes, and that somebody else selected. Right. And I think that's the difference. Now we all can have a blog and we can publish anything. They're self-publishing. Yeah. But there's still some merit to saying, "Hey, an editor liked this and they chose it out of all the other hundreds of submissions that they have." So I think it's, you know, a feel good thing too but we are working to help change the literary landscape and help compensate some of the literary magazine writers
0: all right so the conference next week hippocamp yes downtown lancaster tell me about it this is the second
2: one yep second year um so the name um when people first hear the name if they don't know the magazine behind it they're like hippocamp what is that <laughs> um so it's just uh you know When people get together for three days, it's kind of like summer camp, and it just happened to be part of our name, so we once
0: said Hippo Camp.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so we called it Hippo Camp as a playful name on. on our uh, magazine name, but it's yeah, three days of learning and sharing all dedicated toward creative nonfiction. We have some author readings, and um, the people that are reading are just published their first book. And the reason I did that is because everybody and a lot of people in the audience want to publish a book, so there's somebody who just did it. So they're really close to that. So I thought that was important. Um, Saturday, we have a day full of breakout sessions in three tracks, craft, share, and live. Craft is the practical parts about writing. Uh, Share is publishing and promotion. You know, how do I get my work out there? How do I promote myself? And live is probably something that we don't focus on as much, but the writing life. You know, a lot of people that write have full-time jobs, have families, so you want to write but how do you get it all done so we have breakout sessions and a keynote speaker that's going to talk about that um, and then we also have some all conference panel discussions people will hear from agents and editors and people um, we have a panel about truth in creative nonfiction and what that means so all over the place.
0: I can think of some political candidates who could probably uh, benefit from that but <laughs> I, I, I throw these things out to you um, we actually had a call here from uh, uh, Linda, who said uh, from Enola said that uh, that uh, written expressions are are better than spoken expressions very often, and a lot of people find it much easier to write than to express themselves in a verbal way.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And there's definitely a difference. Um, I participate sometimes in the Lancaster Story Slam. And my very first one, since I'm more of a writer, I tried to memorize my my thing and have lots of literary elements in it. And it just it didn't go over as well as when I just went up and went off the cuff. So I think the way we tell our stories can be very different if if we're writing them or if we're telling them to a live audience.
0: Storytelling is one of the breakout sessions you have, right?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: Well, what I was going to say, is you know that very often when I'm doing this show, uh, in so many words I'm telling people you know tell me a story because one of the things and I'm sure you've found this, everyone has a story to tell, Absolutely. whether you put it down on paper you know, you type it out on on, on a computer, uh, or you're just telling someone else. Everyone has a story to tell, and being able to write it down would be great.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's why. And anytime I'm you know, in line with somebody at the grocery store, I just say, oh, hey, where are you from? Because I just want to know everybody's story as much as I can. Um, but yeah, um, storytelling and, you know, with NPR's The Moth, StoryCorps, you know, these are all um, efforts that are telling true stories. And now we have local story slams in central PA. So there definitely is a desire for people to want to hear true stories. And I think the same could be said about reading them, whether it's an essay or or a memoir. But Writers also have to learn how to be good public speakers, because if they do get a book out, they're going to have to go to readings and and, um, talk about their book and know what to say and do radio interviews with Scott Lamar. Um, So I think that even though if somebody is a really good writer, they might be shy. So we kind of need to break those barriers and say you can write, but you also have to know how to tell your story. You know, and I
0: I, I hate to ask you to judge other people, Mm -hmm. but... You know, we've heard often that writing is a skill that the public, put it this way, the public is not as skilled at writing as they once were. Part of it is because of the way we communicate with social media, you know, with Twitter, uh, Facebook, That uh, and people often point to younger people. I always tell people when they ask about getting into uh, the communications uh, business, say, write as much as you can, read as much as you can. But do you find that to be the case that uh, people just are not as skilled at writing? I mean, yeah, you have some people who are really good, but overall that we don't write as well as we used to.
2: Absolutely. Um, I don't teach college-level English, but I have a lot of friends who do, and they just say the students coming in just aren't as skilled as they used to be. And so I think there needs to be more emphasis put on that, but I also think... Something I've noticed lately is reading. Um, people aren't comprehending what they're reading, um, you know. So I think reading comprehension is important, too. So reading and writing go hand in hand. If you want to be a better writer, you need to write more, but you also need to read more. Reading the daily paper every day is, is a really good good way to do that.
0: And. I'm one of those people that I like actually holding the newspaper.
2: Me too, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I publish an online magazine, but I am a seven-day subscriber of LNP, and um, I get print magazines, and I buy only books. I don't have an e-reader, so I like the tangibleness. I like books too. Yeah.
0: I like holding the book. Yeah,
2: (laughs) it's the ink smell, really. Well, (laughs) it's either that or I'm
0: old. I don't know. One of the the two. But, you know, I also noticed, and I'm jumping around on you, but uh, I noticed that um, you have a, a, a poetry breakout session.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, writers write in multiple genres and people have noticed that there are some parallels between poetry and nonfiction because a lot of, and I'm not a poet, so I'm trying to say this as a a non-poet, but a lot of poetry comes from within, you know, and it might be inspired by yourself. But also a lot of beginning writers can tend to ramble. They might write three pages, but the story really starts on page four. So when you look at poetry and how every single word counts and there's a rhythm to it, by studying poetry, you can actually make yourself a better essay writer. So the idea that uh, Marshall, he's from Rosemont College, he's going to do a session about Marshall Marshall Warfield. Okay. And um, yeah, so his session is about how you can take tools from poetry and help it refine your essays and make them better.
0: Hmm. Uh, so the the conference is it for people who are aspiring writers or if there's someone who just again by aspiring writers Mm -hmm. i mean someone who actually says i'm going to make the move here to become a professional writer or to to write more or are there people out there listening who say you know what i always would like to learn how to write better i mean is it that elementary? Are there some uh, breakout sessions for people like that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, We encourage people who, no matter what stage they are in their writing, in their career, we have some attendees that are still undergraduate students, and we have some people that are retired doctors that are coming back. And, there's many different goals. Some people just want to learn the right better stories to maybe pass something down to their family just to get it down on paper, while others might want commercial success. So it's really for anybody. We have a variety of breakout sessions, all different skill levels.
0: You mentioned uh, one of the sessions and, or uh, a couple of the people participating mm-hmm. who just published their first book. I yeah. always wondered about that. How do you publish a book, especially yeah. that first one?
2: Yeah. And and there's so many different options today as well. Um, You know, the independent presses are getting bigger. It sounds kind of like an oxymoron. But, um, you know, so our five panelists, some were published by one of the big five. Some were by smaller publishers. So we're going to talk a little bit about how they found the publisher they did, why they took that route. Um, Last year, somebody didn't self-publish, but it was um, a partner publishing. That's another kind of new format that's coming up. So, yeah, we want to just show all the different paths you can take and find out why these people did that, how they found their agent, how they found their editor, when they knew they had a book.
0: Editing, self-editing also is a skill that yes. I know that you'll be talking about as well. We have less than a minute left to go, and I want to thank you, Donna, for being uh, with us today. Information for those who may be interested in participating, being a Hippo Camper uh, next week in uh, downtown Lancaster, mm-hmm. August uh, 12th through the 14th. What information ca- do you have for them on air, and can they get more information? Where can they get
2: it? Yep, hippocampusmagazine.com, and then just click on Conference 2015 in the header. That's the quickest way. Just go to hippocampusmagazine.com. And something we wanted to do for the local audience, we know the conference is, is uh, next week, so if you can't attend the whole conference, we're opening up a limited number of tickets for Mary Carr's keynote, which is Saturday. So if you just want to come and see Mary Carr, we have information about that as well. Who's Mary Carr? She's um, she's our headlining keynote. She's a best-selling memoirist. She did the Liars Club lit cherry and she has a new book out called The Art of Memoir.
0: Donna Rico, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on Monday, we have a Smart Talk road trip. We'll be broadcasting live from Pine Grove Furnace State Park, the Appalachian Trail. Stop by and say hello.